0: Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Today, we get a preview of Grand Prix Weekend in Montreal, one of the country's biggest single-event tourism draws, and find out why Montrealers have a bit of a love-hate relationship with Formula One's only Canadian stock. We learn why there is growing concern over the future of Utah's Great Salt Lake. It has already shrunk by two-thirds since the 1980s, and there are warnings that if it continues, the ecological and human impacts will be disastrous we find out how rising interest rates are quickly having an impact on canada's housing market with May sales having cooled in three quarters of all local markets led by regions like the lower mainland in bc edmonton the greater toronto area and in ottawa But first, the Commission into Money Laundering in British Columbia has released its final report. And Justice Austin Cullen's 1,800-page assessment points the finger at police, politicians, and regulators for doing too little to stop billions of dirty cash from flowing into the province. And he makes more than 100 recommendations. Well, first up, that long awaited report into money laundering in BC is hot off the presses, people pouring through the 18, 1800, 1800 pages. That's how long it is. 1800 pages. So you can imagine how detailed it is. It was released today. It's the work of BC Supreme Court or former BC Supreme Court Justice Austin Cullen. Uh, in it, he details the stunning growth in cash transactions into BC casinos specifically that investigators first flag back in 2008 and how those transactions kept rising to 2014 when casinos alone accepted $1.2 billion in cash transactions that were $10,000 or more. This was money being brought into casinos in bricks of cash, in duffel bags, if that didn't sound any alarms. Well, here's Justice Cullen on his report.
1: For too long, money laundering has been kept on the sidelines for police, for law enforcement, for regulators and for governments. Yeah,
0: to say the least. Well, who's to blame, Uh, according to Justice Cullen? Just about everybody, police, politicians, regulators. He says there was no evidence of corruption, though. That was an important part of his uh, report. He is highly critical of the RCMP, of the former BC Liberal government, for letting the crime grow. He took the BC Lottery Corporation to to task, rather, saying it ignored all kinds of warnings that something was amiss. He said the agency tasked by the federal government to identify money laundering threats, FinTrack is, quote, ineffective. He makes 101 recommendations in his final report, 101, including a call for the province of B.C. to set up an independent commissioner to focus on anti-money laundering efforts.
1: Money laundering activity has been and remains to be poorly understood, even by some of the public bodies that need to address it. And money laundering has rarely been given priority. Uh, too often it has been largely
0: ignored. And that appears to be true both federally and provincially. BC's Attorney General David Eby says the NDP government will look at the recommendations, coordinate them with measures already in place or in the works in relation to housing and real estate specifically. He also says federal failures related to money laundering measures were an issue. He's hoping that Ottawa will work with the province on those. Cullen himself said the federal anti-money laundering regime is, quote, not effective. Uh, he also reminded reporters today it is outside his jurisdiction to make recommendations to the federal government. So we fine, we thought we'd ask someone who could. Uh, Christian Luprecht is a professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University in Kingston. He's a senior fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. He also provided input to the Cullen Commission, and he joins us now. Christian, as always, thank you for being here.
2: My pleasure, Ben. Good evening.
0: So overall assessment, at least uh, for all of those people outside of BC, this uh, pointed pointed some fingers at the federal regime as well, saying it just didn't do enough to stop this from happening. Do you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I think it's really important as a report because it's our first time that we actually have a comprehensive assessment of the both the scale, the scope, um, and the, the depth of money laundering um, uh, and how pervasive it is. Um, by the example of British Columbia, but you can extend British Columbia sort of a laboratory of experimentation to the rest of the country. I mean, we saw with the Charbonneau Commission in Quebec that uh, it's, it's no less um, grievous in other parts of the country. Um, and I think Justice Cullen, of course, uh, was careful not to wade into federal territory since that was neither his mandate nor his remit uh, but uh, I think he did go as far as he could in being very explicit in pointing out, for instance, the failures of the federal financial intelligence system, uh, the ineffectiveness of Fintrack, so the financial intelligence and reporting agency of Canada that was set up um, uh, after nine eleven, but also in pointing out the uh, indirectly the failures of the RCMP. In um, its ability to deliver for British Columbia, um, through uh, which which at one point did okay with this integrated proceeds of crime team, but how it it, it completely sort of lost, uh, sort of didn't keep its its eyes on the ball, and so there is a lot here I think for the federal government to chew on in terms of failures that have been pointed out for well over a decade, but that no federal politician seems to want to take an interest in. So it'll be interesting to see to what extent there is appetite at the provincial level to act on the very profound and detailed recommendations um, of the report and to what extent um, politicians will simply see this as um, too complex, too difficult to do, but also ostensibly compromising some of the tax revenue uh, that accrues as a result of illicit funds that are being brought into this country and harboured here.
0: I guess therein lies the issue because as a layperson, one of the things that's always almost impossible to understand is if criminals do it for the money and let's, you know, they're not in it for the fame and glory. If they do it for the money, then you'd think that following the money would be the easiest way to tackle organized crime in this country. And yet when it came to money laundering, which is an important part of criminal proceeds, it, it really felt like, according to Cullen's report, that that everybody either couldn't, wouldn't or didn't do anything about it. Were, were you surprised by uh, by just how much inaction he found, or at least in terms of RCMP, they had had a lot of budget cuts, but just this incapacity of the system and the regulators to tackle this?
2: I wasn't, because what I think the report implicitly uh, calls for is a shift in how we understand money laundering in this country. The money laundering regime is premised on a precursor crime. There's a crime that's committed that generates some funds, and those funds then need to be laundered. Well, it turns out that in a global economy, there either is no precursor crime in many of these cases, because the money is simply moved to Canada, it was, for instance, uh, pilfered from state coffers elsewhere, or the crime happens somewhere offshore, um, and the money then finds its way to a safe haven. Um, and and in the in the case of Vancouver, I mean, there was an international... Uh, it was known as the Vancouver model. Snowshoring was the term um, that became famous across the world for how easy it was and still is to move money into Canada and to find a safe haven for the funds here. And the extremely low risk uh, that you have of that being investigated or coming to the attention of authorities. And so I think the the way I've summarized this is that, I mean, what, What the Cowden Report substantiates is that the Canadian financial system works exceptionally well for organized criminals and for the ultra-rich. And that, I think, is the fundamental problem that the report lays bare, that I think average Canadians lose faith in our democratic institutions if they believe that there's one set of rules for criminals and the ultra-rich in terms of evading taxes and not having to pay their fair dues. Um, and a separate set of rules for you and I and everyone else. And that also means, of course, it undermines our ability to pay, for instance, for social services because we're not able to generate the tax revenue of some of these funds. So it's not just a question about Um, the illicit activity, the lost tax revenue. It's a broader question about the legitimacy of our democratic institutions um, and the inability or the unwillingness, and I would say the political unwillingness of the state to do something about it. Because if you look at, for instance, sanctions that Ken and other countries have imposed against dirty Russian money, I mean, we've known for two decades about the extent of dirty Russian money, including in countries such as Canada, But there simply hasn't been a political willingness to do anything about this. And this is what the report flags, that there's lots of opportunity here for politicians to get a handle on this. The question is, are they prepared to do so?
0: Well, uh, Justice Cullen certainly lays out quite the roadmap with his 101 recommendations. Uh, We'll get to those after this. Christian Duprecht is with us this half hour. We're talking about the release today of the Cullen Commission Report on Money Laundering in BC. 1,800 pages of it, 101 recommendations. Certainly he found lots to talk about, lots at fault, wondering why politicians, regulators... Uh, Authorities, police didn't do more to stop uh, what was clearly uh, a lot of money laundering. He didn't put a number on it. He just said it was staggering. Uh, one thing I wanted to want to ask you before we we get to the recommendations, I, I was one of the big things that was pointed out out here at least was that was the tie to real estate that somehow that this money laundering because it was being funneled into real estate was a lot. Were is where a lot of the money was suspected to be going, um, but that Justice Cullen today said there wasn't really a link or he couldn't find one. Was that surprising at all?
2: Yeah, so um, perhaps not as direct a link as people had expected him to establish, but the data, the direct causal data, is difficult to, uh, to, to draw. At the same time, he establishes very clearly money laundering as a business, and that what we are witnessing in British Columbia is systematic corporate efforts on a vast scale to bring money and to hide money in Canada, in general and in British Columbia in particular, and just how easy it is. and in the process, um, multiple of the recommendations flag several of the professions and shortcoming as in regulations among the professions real estate agents, um, lawyers, accountants and so it is very clear that there is a very significant culpability by multiple of these entities for not holding their own membership to account that um, knowingly aided and abetted on a vast scale money laundering as a business um, in British Columbia um, as documented extensively in the report itself. So I think there's no question about the significant role that the real estate sector played and continues to play, but the very direct causal mechanisms for each of the cases Uh, are difficult to establish. And Justice Cullen explains why they're difficult to establish because uh, police effectively don't have the skill sets to investigate what are ultimately some of the most complex crimes around because by virtue of the professionals involved, the transactions themselves all look legal. You have to put uh, together the entire chain of transactions from money from a foreign country that finds its way to Canada to understand that there are irregularities across this chain. So we've become very good at hiding this money. And so uncovering it is, requires um, skill sets that simply, by and large, Canadian police um, and investigators don't have, which is why Justin Cown suggests that what British Columbia needs is a financial investigation and intelligence agency, which is very much modeled on the submission that I and my team made to the commission.
0: Yeah, I was just about to ask you about that. So one of the recommendations is for an independent commissioner to focus on money laundering. The other is for the one you suggested. Why would that work, do you
2: think? So the commissioner is important insofar as it helps government keep their eye on the ball. One of the problems generally with policy is governments sort of like to chase after uh, the bright, shiny lure. um, And then uh, politicians move on to the next bright, shiny lure. And So if you have a commissioner to look over it, uh, it's a way to sustain attention on the effort to make sure that it is actually seen through and you have regular public reporting and accounting. The challenge here is if police don't have the skill sets and we're not set up, we're failing on the intelligence side uh, to provide the sort of intelligence that police need to be able to run these investigations, then on the one hand, we need to set up an effective intelligence mechanism and we also need to set up an investigative mechanism. But because of the legal regimes and the privacy requirements, these need to set up as two related but separate legal entities and uh, and agencies. And so this is very much the model uh, that Justice Cullen is recommending in terms of how this needs to be set up to be effective. And on the investigative side, he very much suggests that this needs to be a very specialized force that does nothing But investigate these money laundering cases and to have much more effective mechanisms to be able to bring evidence, bring data and bring cases to these highly specialized investigators and that the entire system is currently failing uh, from the intelligence right through the investigation, the prosecution side.
0: What's your sense, Christian? Do you think this one will be uh, put away and gather dust or do you think there'll be actually be some movement here on this one?
2: Well, I would hope that there's lots of opportunity here for the professions to move on their own on many of the recommendations here to make themselves more accountable. Accountants, lawyers, real estate agents in particular, but also uh, money services business businesses. Uh, there are some of the recommendations that British Columbia can move on on its own, such as civil asset, uh, asset forfeiture um, and its own intelligence investigative agencies. And there are some elements, such as unexplained wealth orders, um, and changing the overall financial intelligence and regulatory regime within Canada that will require the cooperation of the federal government. So I do think we will get some, uh, some movement on this, uh, hopefully in particular by the professions um, and hopefully by the same government that ultimately asked for this report. You would think that hopefully that uh, a minister as competent, as capable, uh, as David Eby has proven himself to be, that there will be action from this report.
0: Christian Looprek, thank you so much for your time tonight. Looks like we'll be looking ahead 1800 pages and still people are sure people are still reading through it 101 recommendations. So lots to lots to digest there. Thanks so much.
2: It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Ben. <laughs>
0: Well, this is a big weekend in Montreal. It's Grand Prix weekend. It's the only Formula One event in this country. At least often, it was the only one in the continent. Not this year. There are two others in the US this year, but it's a big weekend in Montreal. First of all, it usually marks the end of spring, beginning of summer. So there are a lot of festivals in Montreal in the summer, the Jazz Fest, the Comedy Fest, and so on. The Grand Prix weekend is really the first big one. Um, And it's the first time they've had it in three years because of the pandemic. So Everyone's excited to go back, hear the roar of the engines, see the big crowds pack around downtown. Montrealers, they'll have kind of a love-hate relationship with the Grand Prix weekend because it does attract a certain moneyed crowd that can be a bit, uh, how would I put it, sometimes a bit hard to take. Nonetheless, it's great for the economy. Apparently, some $40 million comes in because of it in uh, economic impact. It's one of the biggest tourism events, or if not the biggest uh, single event, tourist draw in the country. Um so it is a big deal. Uh, now, it started back in 1978, and of course, fittingly enough, the very first time it was raced, it was won by a Canadian.
3: Gilles
2: Villeneuve on his last lap is almost home to his first Grand Prix win, the fifth Ferrari win of 1978, and in this race, Reutemann's Ferrari third, with 1979 Ferrari team leader Jody Schechter second in his Canadian-sponsored wolf. Of wins and 100,000 cheering Canadians go wild with delight at the first ever Grand Prix win by a Canadian in, of all places, Canada.
0: There you go. 100,000 cheering fans. And it's kind of the same way ever since. It was bigger, of course, when there is there a Canadian driver. And there are a couple this year, a couple from Montreal, actually. And joining me now with more is Montreal Gazette editor and news, in the newspaper's Formula One aficionado, Walter, Walter Bucignani. Thank you so much for your time tonight. An exciting weekend good to be here so it's always an exciting time i gather i mean in the city of and it's been a few years now what's what's it like what's it been uh, what's it been like so far in montreal with grand prix weekend on its way
1: well it's always uh, a huge uh, buzz uh we call it sort of the uh, unofficial launch uh, of summer here when we finally get to uh, really uh throw off the winter blahs and head for the terraces and all that So. Under normal circumstances, it's, it's, it's huge. Uh, but uh, this year, it seems uh, bigger still uh, because uh, the Grand Prix hasn't stopped here for two years because of the pandemic. So you really get the sense that people really want an excuse to go out. And, uh, and, and this, is, uh, this is as good as any. Uh, so it's going to be, I think, uh, even bigger than usual. Uh, around town and i think uh, at the track as well Uh, the event is sold out uh, and i'm told that uh, they've added uh, grandstands they've uh, enlarged uh, the vip lodges Uh, so uh, there i i think i think i think it might be a record crowd
0: Which is, I mean, for for listeners who may have never been to the Grand Prix in Montreal, it's already a a pretty big event. Selling out, that's a lot of people, because there's three days, right?
1: Yeah, it's over three days, and it's on an island. It's on the Ile Notre Dame, which sits in the St. Lawrence there. So uh, there's only so much room to to grow. Um, So typically... Uh, the max you would get is a hundred thousand people each day, so a total of three hundred thousand pushes of the turnstile. But um, but as I say, this year it sounds like they may be able to squeeze more people by building out some of the existing grandstands and also building out uh, some of the um, some of the VIP boxes.
0: I guess this year, one of the things that always excites a Montreal crowd is having someone uh, local to cheer for. Some Canadian drivers this year, too, reminding us of the glory days of Gilles Villeneuve and his son Jacques, of course.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, So Lance Stroll, uh, who uh, these days uh, drives for the uh, Aston Martin team, uh, is being joined by another Canadian, Montreal-born as well. Both of them are Nicholas Latifi. Who uh, races for uh, the Williams team. Unfortunately, uh, neither of them so far has been able to capture the imagination of, of racing fans, uh, the way the, uh, the Villeneuve's did. Uh, um, part of that, uh, is down to the teams they race for. Uh, uh, both of them, well, I would say Aston Martin might be at best a mid-pack team and Williams is way, way out in the back. Uh, nevertheless, uh, you can still make uh, an impression um, and uh, and Lance did that, I think it was at his first uh, try here where he I think he ended ninth or something like that and it really felt like a, a victory, really. Uh, all things considered, so that was a lot of fun. So one hopes that uh, racing at home, uh, in front of the home crowd, that uh, that there will be a you know something to cheer for.
0: Has there been some big firsts at that track? I mean, uh, drivers like Montreal's track, do they not? I mean, sometimes, I mean, if you by the way, if listeners don't know, when they're not racing on it, you can actually cycle on it or walk on it, and it uh, you'd be surprised sometimes at how rough a course it is. But the drivers do tend to like it.
1: The drivers like the track and they like like the city because, uh, you know, uh, the track is uh, close to downtown. So they when they come here, they really sense uh, the atmosphere because it's not far. It's just a metro ride away, uh, which is not the case at a lot of venues elsewhere in the world. So uh, they like that. And the track itself is uh, is really challenging because like it's 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 in some ways like a street circuit uh with um not many runoff areas and so if you make a mistake uh, you run into a wall and yeah. uh, i think they like that challenge and uh, it's a really good mix of uh slow uh um, you know there's a hairpin that's exceedingly slow and then there are fast fast straights where speed speeds can go up top 330 kilometers an hour and so uh, yeah, they seem to enjoy both those things, both the the city and the, and the track itself, and the fact also that people people here go crazy for it. And it's unusual, for example, to see full grandstands on Friday, for example, which is a practice day. Uh, you watch on TV uh, some of the other venues. Uh, there is hardly, well, very often there are a lot of bare spots in the in the grandstands. Uh, not in Montreal. Uh, they're going to start heading out to the track as of tomorrow where there's an open house and, uh, and then, uh, all weekend long.
0: What I always found amazing too about Montreal is that it's not really about the cars, the cars themselves. I mean, there's a lot of interest in the cars. There's certainly a lot of interest in uh, some of the teams. Ferrari, always immensely popular in the city, but it's not really, you don't have to be a car, a car racing fan to enjoy Grand Prix weekend in Montreal. It's more of a, the first of many celebrations through the summer in the city.
1: Yeah. As I said, uh, uh, you know, a uh, it's, it's really the first uh, big excuse to let loose and go out and hit the terraces and, and all of that. And you're right. A lot of the people you see downtown uh, don't know the first thing about car racing, and that's fine. Uh, you know, and the, uh, but, you know, the, the, the venue gets filled up. So you do have a lot of car racing fans because they do go through the race as well.
0: It's interesting that I, I gather tomorrow we're going to find out uh, which Canadian cities are hosting World Cup uh, matches in 2026. There's a global event for you, but Formula mm-hmm. One really is a global event. I mean, it's the most probably in terms of sporting events is probably one of those events that really is the most watched Canadian held event is the Grand Prix in Montreal.
1: It is, and uh, and it is the uh, it is it is Canada's uh, top uh, tourist. Uh, event in terms of uh, the money that it generates and uh, the the viewership because it is a global it is a global event. I mean, we have other festivals that are world renowned, like the Jazz Festival and so on. Uh, but this is really the one that puts a global spotlight on the city, uh, like no other event right now that we that we have.
0: One of the funny things, though, of course, is that Montreal, being Montreal, there are those who love the Grand Prix, embrace it, and there, of course, there are those who deeply dislike it. Is that is that still the case? Are there still, is there still a bit of a divide when it comes to Montrealers themselves about Grand Prix weekend?
1: No, absolutely. Yeah, And I was going to get to that. Uh, you know, you, there's there's no question that there are a lot of people who don't like it, and uh, and for a lot of them, Grand Prix weekend is their cue to head for the cottage. So um, and yet, I think I think most people agree that it's a great thing for Montreal to have, even if personally they'd rather not be around that weekend. Um, So it's a little bit of a a love hate relationship for, for some for some people there
0: were uh, i mean not so long ago there was often talk of it not coming back to montreal but i gather its future is pretty much secured now at least for another decade more or less
1: yeah so there was uh, a long term contract in place and then uh when the pandemic hit uh two more years were were added to that uh and uh as a compensation so uh and now I don't remember the exact date, but it's uh, yeah, twenty thirty one uh, I think twenty thirty 2030 or twenty thirty one. It's, it's mm. guaranteed till okay. uh, till then. There are always questions though, because now the series seems to be um, gaining um, uh, more popularity in the U.S., which which was not always the case. And I think I think the Netflix effects effect here had, has a lot to do with it. Uh, that that series, uh, Drive to Survive, which I think has been renewed now for a fifth season and a sixth season, uh, has really made a big impact. And uh, so this season, there are two U.S. races, and as of next season, I believe there will be three. So there is always that question about, you know, is Montreal going to get uh, squeezed out at some point? Because there are only a a certain number of races that you can, you can hold uh, somewhere around 20, 21, 22. So that's always a little bit uh, of a question mark.
0: Your favorite Grand Prix moment? I've been there twice. I think I've been to two. One back when I was very young, like nineteen eighty-one or something, and sitting on the hairpin of no, no doubt. And then again mm. in the in the nineties. Uh, you, what, what's, what's your favorite memory of of, uh, of the Circuit Gilles Villeneuve?
1: Um, I think it would have to be that chaotic race, and of course I can't think of the year now where Jensen the, Button won. Right with all uh, the rain that year, where they had to delay the whole thing. Yeah, so really? it's still it, it, it's it's still uh, in the books as the longest Grand Prix ever held. It was about four hours long <laughs> because of a two-hour rain delay because there is a, there is a time limit on, on the race, but you can stop and start it again. So the race itself was two hours, but it took place over a four-hour period, and it was just torrential rain. But the thing is, one, no one left. I mean, again, <laughs> the drivers – were genuinely astounded that everybody just sat there in the rain for four hours till the bitter end you can't jensen, get off that island that's one of the problems <laughs> maybe that was it. i'm kidding yeah uh, and jensen Button. yeah he won i remember and that. he won i think he had like five or six pit stops <laughs> in that race it was all going wrong for him he ended up in last place and then from there ended up winning on the last lap it was just stupendous but that's in the record books and uh, the other memorable moment of course was Lewis Hamilton winning his first race here that's also in the record books as uh, the first race won by a black driver
0: well it, it sounds like it's going to be yet another great week I look forward to watching it from afar uh, Walter Buffini, thank you so much for your time
1: great thanks for
0: having me Well, if you look at a map of Utah, you cannot miss Great Salt Lake, a huge patch of blue in the north of the state near the borders with Idaho and Wyoming. You can even see it from space, apparently, at least according to Google. Well, uh, the Great Salt Lake of Utah is on the verge of becoming locals warn, an environmental disaster. It has already shrunk by two-thirds since the 1980s, from about 8,500 square kilometers to just over 26, or just under 26. That's according to U.S. Geological Survey data from last summer. Climate change and siphoning of water from its mountain source are behind the evaporation. The population of Salt Lake City, of course, has exploded in recent years, meaning more and more of the mountain snowmelt is being diverted from rivers to homes and farms. And the warning is that the lake continues to dry up at this rate. The ecological and human impacts will be disastrous. Part of that is because the lake's bed soil contains a cocktail of heavy metals. So when they're exposed to windstorms, it would drive arsenic, presumably into the lungs of people living nearby. And three quarters of Utah's population apparently would be affected by the poisonous air. Well, to look into this a little bit more is Bonnie Baxter. She's a professor of biology at Westminster College in Salt Lake City and director of the Great Salt Lake Institute. Uh, Thank you for your time, Dr. Baxter.
3: Oh, thanks. I'm happy to be here.
0: For listeners who may not be aware, and perhaps the name of Salt Lake City is a bit of a giveaway, but just how important is Great Salt Lake to the entire region, a fast-growing one at that?
3: Oh, it, it is our namesake, and it is um, something that I've come to understand is in the fabric of people that live in Utah. Um, now that it's threatened, I'm hearing from people daily about you know how much they're, they're missing this lake already, um, before it's gone. And it's, um, it's fascinating to think about its role in humans' lives, but, uh, yeah, it, it creates jobs. It provides an amazing resource for birds. Um, it supports industry. It's really important to the state of Utah and frankly, the whole West.
0: Um, you just used a term that I think people might be shocked to hear and that's the word gone. Um, what's been happening to great salt Lake recently?
3: Well, in 2019, I co-wrote the obituary for Great Salt Lake, which was written as if we were in the future and looking back at a lake that was gone. And um, so I I do think a lot about that, um, about what it will be if it is gone. And um, I tried to shake people up by, by writing that and publishing it. And it, it's getting a lot of airplay right now, actually, yeah. because people are resurrecting that piece. And um, it, so, so the threat is really about the lake shrinking. It, it's normal for terminal lakes to shrink and swell, you know, like your normal ever average everyday lake has a certain elevation and it might flood a little when there's a lot of rain, but then it comes back down to its normal elevation and and water flows in and water flows out and it equilibrates. Mm-hmm. Um, but a terminal Lake is kind of like, um, it's kind of like a cereal bowl, you know, it's, it's shrinking and swelling based on how much milk you pour in the cereal bowl and, right. and how much evaporation occurs. And, and so that that the problem is we're getting less precipitation. We're getting more in the form of rain and, and not snow, um, and we're getting warmer temperatures. So the, we're getting increased evaporation. We're not recharging the water, if you will. We, we didn't set ourselves up for success. That's the problem. We've been doing water diversions for about 100 years. And um, so now the lake is not in a place where it can withstand the pressures of climate change.
0: It has shrunk, I gather, by two-thirds.
3: That's about right. I think it's like more than 40% of the shoreline is exposed. The, the lake bed, I mean, the lake bed is exposed.
0: How close is it to it? I mean, we talk about tipping points where we think that a you know a body of water, for instance, will not come back. We've seen it happen around the world. How close is Great Salt Lake to reaching the point of no return?
3: Well, so I, I could... I could go deep into that question mm-hmm. because I study the the microalgae and the cyanobacteria that live on these stromatolite-like structures in the lake, and I'm watching very carefully because those are important for the ecosystem, for the foundation of the ecosystem. You know how, they, how um, plants and algae are kind of the first level of any ecosystem on earth? Um, well, that's threatened In two ways. One is because the lake is shrinking, these stromatolites are becoming exposed. And the other problem is that the lake is becoming more salty. So as the as the lake shrinks, water evaporates, but salt doesn't. So there's more salt and less water. And so we've watched this lake in the last few years go from about twelve percent salinity up to about seventeen percent in the south arm of the lake where the big you know, ecosystem is. Um, and and so what we know is these microbes that feed the brine shrimp and the brine flies that feed the food chain, mm-hmm. um, those those microbes start to die at about 70, 17% salt. So, so right now we're at uh, about 15.5%. We expect to be at 17 by the end of the summer, and that's a restrictive salinity. Um, so I think we're very close to a tipping point now, now how long can they hang out at that restrictive salinity and then be resuscitated with more water? We, we don't know the answer to that. We're looking at that in our lab. Um, but yeah, that, that's why I'm worried because we're reaching a salinity that is detrimental, not only to the invertebrates because brine shrimp and brine flies also would prefer to not be that salty, but also to the microbes that feed them.
0: You've you've talked about this. It is a very delicate balance, and a chain reaction is set off if one yeah. thing goes right.
3: Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm a molecular biologist, so I study genes and mm. think about um, the way things live at high salt. And so I, I've been I, I'm really focused on salinity mm. because how salty something is 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 really important to the kind of life that I study. But just for example, the the ocean is is about three point five percent salt. So we're talking about a system that has evolved to be at really high salt. And um, it's it's still got a threshold, though. It still could be too salty. And and we've kind of already done this experiment because in 1960, um, folks built a railroad causeway across Great Salt Lake and um, shored up this old causeway that was there with rocks and prevented flow of water between the two arms, and the north arm then became saturated with salt. So it's like above 30% salt, like right. about, almost 10 times the ocean, right? And the, the brine shrimp don't live there. The brine flies don't live there. The birds don't come and eat there. The, the stromatolites are dead. So we've already done this experiment, and, and it didn't turn out so well. So do we want to do that with the rest of the lake? <laughs> I, I think not.
0: And, and it's been mentioned too that what lies beneath the lake, the lake bed itself, if it if it's exposed, uh, there's a lot of lot of different elements that are in that dust too. It could present a real health issue for the surrounding areas, no less.
3: Yeah, that's correct. So there's a history of mining in the in the Western United States and also Canada, um, and the mining has some. Um, um, uh, environmental fingerprints and one of those is is heavy metals in the environment and so uh, whether it's airborne mercury coming over from gold mining in Nevada or uh, whether it's local mining that um, that used the water that then went into Great Salt Lake um, uh, selenium arsenic mercury methylated mercury are in this lake bed and I imagine those won't be good things to breathe when this dust becomes airborne
0: if and when they're kicked up. I'm speaking with Dr. Bonnie Baxter, a professor of biology at Westminster College in Salt Lake City, Utah, We're, and director of the Great Salt Lake Institute. We're talking about uh, Great Salt Lake and just how much it's shrunk over the past while by two thirds, the increasing salinity, the impact that will have as uh, Great Salt Lake slowly disappears, and just what happens, how could we turn it around? We'll talk about that after this. I'm speaking with Dr. Bonnie Baxter, Professor of Biology at Westminster College in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Director of the Great Salt Lake Institute. Uh, we're talking about Great Salt Lake, really the oasis in which much of that area, fast, one of the fastest growing areas in the U.S., is built around, including Salt Lake City, uh, its namesake, uh, and just what impact uh, you know, the steady disappearance of Great Salt Lake is having uh, on the region. Uh, Bonnie, what can be done about this? I mean, you, you're obviously, this is where you live. This is what you study. Uh, what yeah. can be done to try to turn this Around and and I gathered involves some very difficult choices, both for people who live there, and lawmakers and businesses in general.
3: Yeah, I think I think the funny thing about scientists is we can, you know, we can see the problem. Um, like I said, when we wrote the obituary in 2019, mm-hmm. we were already seeing the problem, and and we can call attention to the problem, but we're really not great at engineering solutions because that requires, um, like. A legislature and water lawyers and policy. And that's not, you know, that's not in a scientist wheelhouse typically. So, I've been really amazed at what's happened over the last year in the state of Utah. Um, The state agencies have really taken this to heart and have been working hard altogether. The state lands folks, the water quality folks, the Division of Wildlife. um, And And they've gotten the attention for the lake that it needs, and that resulted in a really kick-ass legislative session. There were um, so many, just numerous bills that were passed that have to do with getting water to the lake, whether it's uh, redefining beneficial use as that for um, a saline lake, or whether it is... creating a trust to fund research on the lake. Um, Some of the infrastructure package that was passed in the U S house and Senate ended up in Utah and will be used for great salt lake. Um, So it, I was really amazed at the way environmental groups, industry, real estate developers, legislators were all on the same team. And these bills passed unanimously. It was amazing. So bipartisan legislation doesn't often happen in Utah. And that was pretty phenomenal.
0: So there is some hope here that maybe uh, things will be turned around. And, and it, it is quite the example of, of just how lawmakers and people from all walks of life and all different sorts of uh, economic activities can pull together if the very source of their livelihood is threatened the way yours is.
3: Oh, that's right. I mean, a lot of people move to Utah because of the ski industry. And um, part of that snow that Utah's slogan is the greatest snow on earth. So um, they're really proud of that snow, right? And part of that snow is contributed by something called lake effect. So this, you know, storms move in and roll over this wet body of water and dump this beautiful snow on the mountains. So that is both our our water supply, but it's also our fun in the winter time. And so, um, you know, people might care about the ecosystem. There are 10 million birds, 10 million birds that visit this lake every year. And, and it's a critical habitat. And, and maybe they don't care about the ecosystem. So then, oh, maybe they care about the economy. And so we've got brine shrimp industry and mineral extraction industry, and maybe they care about that. And and OK, maybe they don't. So maybe they're real estate developers and they care about what the dust is going to do to the property values. Um, or, or maybe not. And I tell you, if you get down to the bottom of that list, the one that everybody cares about, here's the ski industry.
4: (laughs) As
0: Canadians, as Canadians, we can relate to that as well. We we understand lake effects snow as well. It's one of those common terms off the great lakes in Ontario as well. Um, one of the things you, you did talk about is that Canadians have an interest here too, because, uh, the birds that migrate from Canada to Mexico, uh, stop off at great salt lake. It it would have an impact north of the border as well. Would it not?
3: Absolutely, um, the the ten million birds that visit here um, are are stopovers to feed up before they they head further south for the winter. And This is said to be the most important body of water in the the Western Americas, and and. for for these birds. So that stopover and those brine shrimp that they eat, um, there's powerful biomass in this lake with the brine shrimp and the brine fly and the brine fly larvae that are in the lake. Um, And these birds come here and they get fat and then they can carry on their journey. So um, there are many bird species that will be threatened if this lake disappears. And yeah, Canadians really ought to care about that, particularly birdwatching Canadians.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. So, so you do have some optimism then. So what are we looking for in the near future? You spoke earlier about how the fact that by the end of this summer, we could see salination at levels that would be essentially, in, we think, right. in, in, intolerable. So are we looking at a, at a lot of short-term uh, bad news before we see something better?
3: I, I hope so. I mean, some of this depends on climate, right? And, um, and, and local weather and all of those things. But uh, I, I hope that some of the legislation that was passed will help move some of this water to the lake. So that's one way that things get better. Um, but also, I'm I'm on a state committee for um, studying the salinity of the lake, and uh, one of the things that we're talking about are engineering mechanisms to potentially move some of the salt from the south arm to that um, isolated north arm that I talked about. That is at saturation, and so if we could. Uh, move some of the salt um, that way and make this arm uh, the, of the lake that serves the birds a little less salty, that would be great. So I think some potential engineering solutions that make a little bit of difference and maybe um, so, some more water that um, you know farmers decide to lease their water rights to the state, the water that they're not using, that would be great. They're actually going to measure secondary water uh, for farmers, which has never been done, so that so that agriculture folks can actually know how much water they're using and if they need it all. So there's some interesting um, potential solutions, and all of them could make a little bit of difference. Um, Also, if you travel in the southwestern United States, you often, like in Arizona and New Mexico, you'll see like landscaping that looks like gravel with really dry xeric plants growing in it. And that's only beginning to take off in Utah. Utahns are really proud of their lawns. Um, And that needs to stop because that's water that has very little benefit. And I think we need to get a little more water wise and focus on conservation and um, do what we can do and control what we can control.
0: Certainly an example here of how when the climate changes, when your access to water changes, the things you've taken for granted, no doubt in a place like Utah for many, many decades now, suddenly you you can't. Uh, Bonnie Baxter, thank you so much for your time tonight.
3: Yeah, so great to talk to you. Thank you for your interest in the lake.
0: So a little earlier in the week, we had Brett Chang from the Peak Daily on. We were talking about what was going to happen today with the U.S. Federal Reserve. To no one's surprise, it raised its key interest rate by three-quarters of a point. The largest hike since 1994. Uh, Now, the Bank of Canada's upped its interest rate by half a half point two times in recent months. It's believed Governor Tiff Macklem uh, is prepared to act more. He said he will act more forcefully. uh, Now that the Fed's gone ahead with its large hike, it seems even more likely that uh, Tiff Macklem will go ahead with his at the Bank of Canada. And we're already seeing the impact of rising interest rates on the housing market here at home. Canada home sales dropped by nearly 22% since last year and almost 9% between April and May. Uh, That was numbers from the Canadian Real Estate Association released today. They say May sales cooled in three quarters of all local markets led by regions like the Lower Mainland and BC, Calgary, Edmonton, uh, the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area and Ottawa with rising mortgage rates weighing on sales. The association now expects uh, 568,288 properties to change hands this year. That's a 14.7% decline from the 2021 record, uh, but still the second highest annual figure ever. Well, to clear this all up for us, I'm joined now by Sean Cathcart. Uh, he's the Canadian Real Estate Association's Senior Economist. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Hey, Ben. Interesting uh, report that we're seeing, certainly an acceleration, I guess, but uh, where where are we at in May?
4: So uh, I, I would describe it as a very uh, quick return to more normal types of uh, conditions for the most part. Certainly the sales activity has returned from quite elevated levels uh, just a few months ago to uh, pretty much average for the month of May. Uh, and same thing on the price side of things, we've seen uh, you know from record growth uh, through, from October of last year through February of this year to almost no growth.
0: And we're seeing this sort of spread out a similar story right across the country, more or less.
4: Yeah, more or less. I mean, it's a it's really an interest rate story. Right. And so um, not so much what the Bank of Canada has done so far, but what they're expected to do, uh, which is a very steep uh, and and steepening um, uh, interest rate hiking cycle um, that, you know, wasn't really expected even near on this level just six months ago and so um when people started to expect that uh, you get five-year fixed mortgage rates that price that in well in advance uh, and we had a big spike in mortgage rates and that affects people all across canada
0: so what are we seeing regionally i mean i realize that vancouver and toronto uh, the gta the lower mainland often drives some of this data but uh, what kind of picture are we seeing from uh, from east to west
4: sure well uh just to pick up on on that point, you know, uh, Toronto, Vancouver are a lot more expensive than virtually anywhere else in, in Canada, and so when mortgage rates rise, or when something like the stress test comes in, I can I can get into the stress test element here because that's gone gone up too, um, not via Osfi changing their number, but uh, just by the contract rates that people are getting plus two hundred basis points is all of a sudden in the you know. St- low 6% range, as opposed to the OSFI at 5.25. And so that's been a a, a big factor. Um, So what you see is, um, you know, sales tend to go down everywhere. There's a psychological element here when things slow down very quickly, people go to the sidelines uh, and that's sort of all over the place. Um, But it's more interesting on the price side of things in places like Saskatchewan, Manitoba, the Maritimes, uh, where prices are much more relatively affordable. uh, You just don't see the same kind of hit um, because people aren't as close to their borrowing limit um, in, in those places. And so um, definitely Toronto has, has been the, the, the big factor here um, with the biggest sales decline, Vancouver, uh, any big CMA that's, that's relatively expensive um, because it got a lot more expensive to borrow money. And the qualification criteria, if you're going fi- f- uh, fixed rate mortgage, uh, also got a lot uh, uh, tighter just in the last couple of months
0: so if we put this into perspective though compared to where we were say pre-pandemic or two years ago two and a half years ago uh for a may what would this look have looked like before the huge the huge uh heated up market that we got recently
4: it'd be very similar to a normal 10-year average month of may or a 2019 before covid month of may um but that's just on the on the sales side of things uh i think what's more important to uh to focus in on maybe as the supply side, uh, where there's a lot less supply than there was back then. Uh, and that is sort of a, a situation that's only just started to resolve itself uh, in the last couple of months, but it's, you know, uh, I often tell people with housing cycles, it's it, it has, you know, monthly data can jump all over the place, but um, stock variables, like the overall number of listings on the market, uh, on every market uh, MLS system in Canada is a very slow moving beast. Uh, and so the last time we were sort of anywhere near this low was 2002. And so it's 20 years to go all the way up and back down again. And so you can think about that in terms of uh, how long it's going to take us to sort of build back up to a more normal level of, of um, properties for people to choose from. And I think that one of the so where the market is right now might be a little bit of an overreaction um, because that's a, a an issue that hasn't gone away.
0: So are you seeing potential buyers Sort of also taking us potential buyers taking a step back and potential sellers taking a step back.
4: Well, if you're a seller, you can always give it a try, and you don't have to accept any offers that you don't like. Um, But from a buyer's perspective, people jumping into a a, you know making the biggest financial decision of their lives. uh, There oftentimes when there's some gyrations in the market and there's speculation about um, you know recessions and that sort of thing, uh, people will tend to go to the sidelines. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a long, they're playing the long game here. And so you, you don't need to make a move, uh, you know, sort of uh, this month, if you, if you don't have to. And, and another big factor uh, when we've seen, um, you know, policy changes over the last decade, the stress test, that sort of thing. And everyone wonders what's going to happen to the housing market. Even COVID was the same thing. The big money in the big cities goes to the sidelines real fast. And so that's where you sort of, see that impact on the average price, you know, Uh, sales in the Maritimes are chugging away like, uh, like they didn't get the memo. And, you know, the the three, four, five, six million dollar purchases in Toronto and Vancouver are, you know, not going to happen for a little while here.
0: I mean, if we look specifically at Ontario and BC, uh, I guess a lot of what we're seeing, a lot of the shifting obviously happens in areas where there's a lot more activity going on. And those are the big spots, right? Uh, The GTA, uh, the lower mainland.
4: Uh, Yeah, you know, uh, one of the surprising ones actually, uh, with the data out this month, is typically when you've got an increase in borrowing costs like this, I compare the uh, increase in mortgage rates and the stress test now to when they brought the B20 stress test in 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 2018, it's very similar reaction Um, it makes it harder for a lot of people to qualify for the mortgage that they they thought that they were going to qualify for uh, just a few months before. Uh, And so a lot of people have to go back to the drawing board. It doesn't mean that they're priced out forever. Um, One of the the differences this time around is you normally would expect, you know, activity uh, in places like Vancouver to go down more and that, places like further down along the Fraser River Valley to benefit uh, because prices are lower there, but we're actually seeing the opposite uh, right now. Vancouver is sort of chugging away um, and, uh, you know, obviously fewer sales, but prices are holding up just fine. uh, Whereas we're seeing a bit more of the softness uh, in sort of the Fraser Valley, uh, Abbotsford, Chilliwack. Um, You know, for Ontario, Toronto has taken a big hit. Um, Obviously it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of very small markets in Ontario that sort of are one giant market. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we're seeing a bit of price softness there, too, uh, whereas uh, prices are holding up a lot better um, in the prairies and, and, and the maritimes. Like I said, the uh, places that are more affordable are going to take less of a hit when when rates go up.
0: I mean, we certainly saw property values in sort of what we would call bedroom communities really jump uh, during remote work. Uh, The idea that people were sort of moving out of the city. Are we seeing a reverse of that? A lot of those sort of exurban areas that you were uh, mentioning for the Fraser Valley and so on uh, outside the GTA, for instance, or just outside the GTA. We're going to see a bit of a softening there because people's priorities are shifting now back towards uh, more urban living.
4: Uh, I'm not. I'm not seeing anything super obvious right now. I mean, that's been, spe- uh, <clears throat> excuse me, speculated about, obviously, um, but I don't think that the uh, the the you know the return to work orders have have come out yet. I don't know that they're if they're going to or not, uh, but I think that uh, for people that were able to uh, work remotely and 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 make moves based on that are still doing that to this day. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. But obviously, if you know if people are being called back to work. physically, um, then, you know, a lot of people that made those moves are going to have to either change where they live or change their job.
0: I'm speaking with Sean Cathcart. He's the Senior Economist at the Canadian Real Estate Association. We're talking about uh, new home sales uh, data out for the month of May from uh, from the CREA today, showing an 8.6% decline in uh, home sales between April and May 2022, uh, built on a larger drop recorded back in April. And seeing really what we're seeing in the market, I guess, is kind of a return to what, to what a normal May would have looked like a while back, but certainly with a lot less supply. When we come back just a bit more about if you're thinking of selling, if you're thinking of buying, what you should know, what do these numbers, tell you. And uh, we never asked for a crystal ball, but we will ask Sean to to look ahead to see what might happen for the rest of the summer. Uh, That's coming up. I'm speaking with Sean Cathcart this half hour. He's the Canadian Real Estate Association Senior Economist. They have new data out today for the month of May, showing an 8.6% drop in home sales across Canada, pretty much evened out across the country. Some areas doing better than others, uh, some flat, a few declines here and there, but uh, really uh, just down from those really, that really, really high sales that we were seeing uh, a little bit earlier uh, during that boom, post-pand- well, post-pandemic, uh, <laughs> just sort of what we saw with the housing market go absolutely um I wouldn't call it out of control, but certainly very heated of late. Uh, Sean, if I'm looking to sell, and I know you don't give real estate advice, but just with, what are the numbers telling you about uh, for buyers out there? Are they are they really a hesitant bunch, or sellers rather, are they a hesitant bunch right now? Or are they looking at uh, trying to jump in the market? Because as you mentioned, there's very little supply out there.
4: There's still very little supply. There's more than there was, and certainly fewer buyers. Um, I don't think, you know, for a lot of people that you know, a year ago, you might have got, you know, you throw it on the market and get 10 offers and and, and some people knocking on your, on your door that day trying to put in a preemptive offer. I think that uh, a lot of that has gone away, not all of it. Um, you know, I, I often say you, you don't go from red hot to ice cold overnight. You go from uh, red hot to sort of a little bit more lukewarm. And I, I think that's the, the market we're looking at now. And, uh, you know, so if you're a seller, um, you know, you, you put it on there with a realistic asking price and it. it it might not sell in a week anymore, um, but, you know, you can afford to, it, you know, that's the way it was for, for most of history, for most of us that have sold a home, um, you know, that you don't get uh, people clamoring, um, uh, you know, 20, uh, you know, young <laughs> millennial couples clamoring uh, to give you their money. Uh, that's not going to happen anymore because people just can't afford to borrow as much money as they could. Uh, people are more hesitant. Uh, but I think that that's what what most of us wanted uh, it was, was a slowdown, as you said, you know, a market that was too hot—that's uh, now uh, uh, cooling off—and uh, I think that's a good thing. And so it just means that your your place might be on the market a little bit longer. And uh, you know, if you're thinking that you're going to get a hundred over asking, well, I think those days are, are maybe past for for a lot of parts of the country.
0: And for buyers who are standing back, because clearly, if interest rates are rising, that puts some pressure on buyers to move quickly. But also, if you suspect prices are going to fall, you might also wait around to see what happens with that. So a bit of a bit of a, cho- a choice to make.
4: Yeah, exactly. You're exactly right. Um, you know, I think that the uh, the one saving grace, and this is sort of a blessing and a curse, is that those five-year fixed mortgage rates tend to price in uh, what they expect the Bank of Canada to do over the re- remainder of the year. They're pricing most of that in already. And so as the Bank of Canada continues to raise, now, if they go 75 basis points next month, which I'm hearing chatter about, uh, that, you know, those five-year fixed rates could go up a little bit more. Um, but, the most part that's priced in so i i I don't think that there's a huge rush right now i think that it's it's wise to be um you know careful uh i've seen this before where buyers will step back and go let's just see what happens and what often happens is uh prices sort of stabilize and everything calms down and then they go okay well Let's just go out and and, and uh, you know start looking at properties again, and ultimately, people that are looking for somewhere to live. I mean, the interest rate is what it is, the price is what it is, uh, and so people need to sort of live their lives. Um, but oftentimes, in, in periods of flux like we're in right now, uh, you can really get people that just go sit on the sidelines and say, you know what? Like, I mean, no rush. Like, let's just see what happened, see how this plays out. Uh, and I think that's the kind of situation we're in right now. But as I said before, um, it's not like there's, uh, you know, a million properties out there for sale. Uh, we're, you know, only just coming off the very lowest level uh, in Canadian history, uh, data that goes back to 1980. So um, you've still got major supply issues out there. And if if you're a buyer, this might be your chance to, to grab something if you're out competed, uh, you know, in the last couple of years.
0: Given your role as a chief economist at the Real Estate Association, just how volatile and how unpredictable has the housing market been in the last couple of years for you to try to figure out what's happening and make sense of the numbers and the data that you're getting?
4: Well, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was very difficult to make a forecast for anything. Uh, If you can remember what that felt like when you, you know, I remember walking around my neighborhood and crossing the street when somebody was 200 feet away. It's obviously like we're we're more back to normal now. Um, And of course everyone got that one wrong. Everyone thought that the housing market was going to crash. And then we had the strongest uh, bull market that we've ever seen. Um, I think right now it's actually a little bit easier to forecast because Uh, the main factor influencing things is interest rates. And I can get a database on that and look at it and say, well, you know, it's pretty obvious what's going to happen here. The market's going to slow down when it's harder for people to borrow money, um, versus a year ago. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, in the space of a year that five-year fixed mortgage rates have gone from the lowest level ever to, uh, right now the highest level in over a decade. Um, and so the reaction in the market is actually pretty easy to predict, um, Yes, it's not surprising that we're forecasting prices to get sort of halted in their tracks here and for sales to be a lot lower than they were a year ago. So in that sense, it's easier.
0: Uh, and with, we, as you mentioned earlier, the Bank of Canada, obviously we're hearing chatter, but at least another 0.5% increase, perhaps even higher than that. Uh, but you're saying that that's really already being factored into stuff. So if someone's going out to look at a mortgage right now, the chances are what the Bank of Canada may do for the rest of 2022 is already, is already worked into that to some extent.
4: Uh, to some extent but i mean if you like you know the 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 pace of rate hikes that's expected now is you know uh we we've gone up uh you know 1.25 percent at this point uh so we're at 1.5 i mean like markets are expecting it to be over three by the end of the year they've only got four more meetings to do that um so that's not carved in stone and i'm you know that's not my prediction that's just looking at sort of what financial markets are expecting uh the street um but uh, that's a really steep pace of rate hikes. But l- like you say, a lot of that is already priced in, but that pace is steepening by the day here. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if mortgage rates go up again.
0: It will be uh, interesting to see your reports in the months to come. Sean Cathcart, thank you so much for your time
4: tonight. Anytime.